If We Must Die by Claude McKay, written about the Red Summer. McKay was a writer and poet who became a key figure in the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s. If we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain, then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honour us, though dead. O oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe, though far outnumbered let us show us brave, and for their thousand blows deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave? Like men will face the murderous cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. Triple Alliance, untapped power. With engineers and others taking on the employers, would the other bastions of industrial power, the rail workers, miners and transport workers, join the fray? The government feared that they would, knowing that their unions had a deal, called the Triple Alliance, to, try to strike in solidarity with each other, if asked. But through 1919, the government and employers would outflank them, with the union leaders allowing their disputes to be pushed to the later part of the year, by which time the authorities were ready to contain or even beat them. The government had taken the railways, mines and docks into their own control during the war, and as 1919 began, had not yet returned them to their owners. The Miners' Federation presented its demands for a 30% rise in miners' wages, a six-hour working day, and public ownership. The National Union of Railwomen, NUR, demanded an eight-hour day. Not yet ready for a showdown, the government agreed, though employers tried to get the time back by scrapping the five-minute hand-washing break. London Underground tried to count its driver's half-hour meal break as extra to the eight-hour day, but five days into a strike in February, tube bosses backed down. Prepared for power. Rail workers in London and Liverpool also wanted to strike, and according to NUR historian Philip Bagwell, the General Secretary J.H. Thomas, quote, had considerable difficulty in restraining the men, end quote. Thomas had risen up the NUR ranks since his role in its formation just before the war. He was an avowed constitutionalist, opposed to revolution and to militant action, and was determined to restrict this dispute to narrow workplace demands and to settle it as peacefully as possible. The Cabinet set up an Industrial Unrest Committee and Lloyd George wrote to the Lord Privy Seal Andrew Bonner Law that, quote, we shall have to fight the disputes through, end quote, as, quote, Labour is getting unreasonable in some respects, end quote. When the Prime Minister met Robert Smiley, Transport Workers Federation General Secretary, in February, a revealing exchange took place. Lloyd George admitted that the Triple Alliance could beat the government and asked Smiley and those with him, quote, have you weighed the consequences? The strike will be in defiance of the government and by its very success will precipitate a constitutional crisis of the first importance. For, if a force arises in the state which is stronger than the state itself, then it must be ready to take on the functions of the state. Gentlemen, have you considered? And if you have, are you ready? End quote. Smiley was a militant, but he was not a revolutionary. He conceded the point. Rail delays. The NUR had more demands, higher overtime rates, two weeks paid leave and labour and capital to jointly run the railways. The railway executive refused these and so the union's special general meeting, SGM, voted to ask the Triple Alliance to strike. But the NUR leaders were not keen 
and with the Transport and Miners Union leaders, decided against. Instead, they met Bonalore, who made small concessions to the NUR on working hours, rest periods and holidays. On the 27th of March, the NUR SGM voted 41 to 19 not to go ahead with strikes because of progress in talks, a phrase familiar to rail union members to this day. Those talks would continue for six months while the government prepared to defeat the inevitable strike, but the union leaders prepared to avoid it rather than win it. Bonalore proposed empowering the state to seize strike funds and arrest strike leaders, and headed off disputes in other industries by convening a national industrial conference to draw up some limited improvements for workers. Sidelined into Sankey. Like the NUR, the Miners' Federation let the government persuade it to defer action. Lloyd George appointed the Sankey Commission to look into conditions and ownership of the coal industry, promising to implement its findings. The Sankey report, delivered on the 20th of June, favoured nationalisation, a 20% pay rise and one hour off the working day. The Miners' Federation leadership trusted the government to honour this, but in July, miners held unofficial strikes. His confidence buoyed by the union leaders' timidity, on the 18th of August, Lloyd George rejected nationalisation. Labour MP Vernon Hartshorn said that miners had, quote, been deceived, betrayed and duped, end quote. Still, the Miners' Federation did not fight back. Back on the rails. Rail workers threatened unofficial strikes. In August, the employers offered pay rises to clerical workers and footplate men, train drivers and firemen, making deals with the Railway Clerks Association, Forum of TSSA, and the Associated Society of Locomotive Engineers and Firemen. As left. But the government then proposed wage cuts for other grades, and the NUR issued a strike ultimatum. Last ditch talks failed to avert the strike, which began on the 26th of September. Despite having its own deal, Aslef joined the strike. The government went into action, allowing food controllers to requisition horses and vehicles. 23,000 soldiers and 86 infantry battalions were on standby. The Navy deployed 10 destroyers, 20 sweepers, 6 sloops. 16 drifters and 28 trawlers. The ex-services organisations refused to help with strike breaking. Scab trains ran with the help of volunteers, including aristocrats such as Lord Louis Montbatten. The government asked mayors to set up local citizen guards. The strike was solid. Rail workers organised mass pickets, support for strikers' families, even football matches. They were sustained by strike pay of 12 shillings per week, plus one shilling per child and they had wide support. The government's propaganda campaign was countered by the Labour Research Department on behalf of the NUR. Lloyd George called the strikers anarchists. The Daily Mail accused them of starving railway horses. In fact, pickets fed them. London bus, tram and dock workers asked the Transport Workers Federation to call them out on strike. But union leaders wanted to confine the strike to the rail industry. Thomas believed that a triple alliance strike aimed at the state would be disastrous. He wanted the dispute settled, not won by either side. On the 3rd of October, Transport Minister Eric Geddes said that rail workers would not be paid for the week before the strike. Union leaders warned Lord George to be more reasonable or they could not stop a widespread extension of the strike. On the 5th of October, the government dropped its wage cuts and promised to standardise wages. The strike was over. What was won? The strike had won its immediate demands and shown the power of workers taking action. The NUR executive gave the credit to Thomas, calling a collection to which branches donated enough money for him to buy and furnish a house. 
but could the strike have gone further? NUR President C.T. Cramp admitted that, rather foolishly, the union had not actively prepared for the strike as it trusted the government to act fairly. On the 19th of October, Robert Williams of the Transport Workers Federation told a rally that it had been a tactical error not to mobilise the Triple Alliance, earning himself a rebuke from the NUR executive. Within weeks, some NUR branches passed resolutions declaring that simply withdrawing wage cuts was not good enough. Workers needed a wage rise. By June 1920, branches were angry at the government's pitiful pay offer of two shillings a week. The union's Bishop Auckland and District Council condemned the audacity of the wages board and protested against NUR officials signing such a paltry deal. Tellywayne branch expressed his disgust and called on the union to call a strike if the employer did not agree a pound a week increase. As it had transpired, a potentially very powerful strike had won demands that were limited, defensive and short-lived. Making History 1919 saw historic struggles, but mostly they failed. Even when they succeeded in heading off a particular attack or winning an advance, they did not succeed in remaking society. Imagine if they had. Imagine if workers had succeeded in taking and holding power in Germany, Hungary and elsewhere, and had linked up with Soviet Russia. Imagine if movements in the colonies had won full independence and brought an end to empire. If the end of the war had seen a democratic and internationalist peace, rather than a punitive one. Imagine if Britain's trade union battles had won public ownership and democratic control of industry, and if workers had consistently fought against the government and employers, instead of against each other. Imagine if the labour movement's leaders had fought our side of the class struggle as effectively as the capitalists' leaders fought theirs. The entire history of the last hundred years would have been completely different. There would have been no fertile ground for Hitler to come to power and murder millions. A Soviet Union not battered and isolated would have been unlikely to see a tyrant like Stalin take its reins. Working people could have reorganised production so that rather than filling profit accounts, it met human need, eliminated poverty and protected the environment. A collectively owned and democratically planned economy would not have lurched into crisis, causing the hunger and desperation of recession. National rivalries and war could have been replaced by the solidarity of peoples. Is this just fantasy? Was workers' revolution possible? The Socialist Labour Party claimed in its 1919 manifesto that, quote, The air of Europe is quivering with revolution. Not alone the air, but the whole landowning and capital class of this country are quivering with fear at the unforeseen results of the European war. End quote. There is plenty of evidence that the ruling class genuinely feared working class revolution. Lloyd George wrote to his cabinet secretary, Tom Jones, that should the Triple Alliance strike, quote, it is imperative that the state wins. Failure to do so would inevitably lead to a Soviet republic. End quote. The conditions for revolution. Revolution becomes possible when people lose faith in the old order, refuse to support it or follow its instructions, and people create, participate in, and obey a new source of power. There was a glimpse of this in the general strikes in Glasgow, Belfast, and especially in Limerick. Strike movements become potentially revolutionary when they progress from refusing to work to working under their own orders rather than the bosses. The British government certainly believed that workers' revolution was possible, saying so in public words and private letters. In May 1919, a Home Office survey listed the six top causes of revolutionary feeling amongst the working class. High prices, 
bad housing, hatred of the rich, education, leadership and unemployment. But the sad truth is that there was no revolutionary leadership. Workers' revolution needs the existing regime to be in crisis and the workers' movement to be conscious of its need and ability to overturn it and take control. In 1919, both these conditions were developing. So, why didn't it happen? The short answer is that the leaders of the ruling class fought their side of the class war more effectively than the leaders of the working class did. Labour MPs were at best absent from working class struggles, at worst actively opposing them. The Communists had not yet formed a united party. On the 1st of February 1919, the Heralds complained of, quote, Little or no coordination in the trade union world. There is no concerted plan of action. There is merely a growing spirit of unrest. There is no clear vision of the goal in view, and little or no conscious revolutionary feeling. End quote. Andrew Bonalaw, Conservative Party leader in 1919, said that, quote, the trade union organisation was the only thing between us and anarchy, end quote. In his History of the Year, written from the state's point of view, Simon Webb concluded that, quote, in a very real sense, the leadership of the unions were allies of the government, as anxious as the cabinet that the political system of Britain remain intact, end quote. This is not just a matter of anger at the personal failings of Thomas, Smiley and other union leaders, however justified that anger may be. The bureaucratic structure of our unions creates leaders who find a comfortable niche in the system, negotiating between the rulers and the workers. Next time. 1919 provides inspiring stories and important lessons. Much has changed in the last hundred years, but the fundamentals remain the same. A small minority class owns the means of production, and everyone else has to work for them. Capitalism has its crises, and at times becomes weak enough to directly challenge. The working class can confront capitalism and replace it with socialism if it forges an effective, democratic movement with accountable, recallable leaders, and if it has the political consciousness to take the battle forward. To put these things into place, we need to study and learn from our history, to develop theory and strategy, and to apply what we learn to the benefit of the fight for a better world, for socialism. Workers' Liberty is working to build an organisation that can do this. Contact us and work with us.